What's going on, everyone? And welcome in to Plizoth Podcast, filled to the brim with glitchy analysis and freezing cold takes so cold that they're boiling hot. Today's podcast is proudly sponsored by Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. Thank you so much to Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. Check out their website today to get online takeout and delivery deals. Right now, they've got an awesome deal. Get a large one-topping pizza for just $7.99 when you order takeout. Thank you again to Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. Now today, ladies and gentlemen, was the NBA trade deadline. We're also going to get into some college football Q&As later, as well as maybe a little college basketball, but we're mainly focusing on the NBA trade deadline, and man, this is probably the most explosive one that we've ever seen. All right, now look, we're going to get started low, and then we're going to turn up the heat, and we're going to get into the more important ones. For starters, Josh Hart goes to the Knicks. Now, this is not that big of a trade, but to me, this shows that the Knicks are trying to win now. Now, there's a huge gap of talent in between the Knicks and like the four main contenders being the Cavaliers, 76ers, Bucks, and Celtics. But you know what? I love this move. Josh Hart and Jalen Brunson were actually teammates back at Villanova, and they won a national championship together. So this is actually a really cool pairing. Jalen Brunson was really excited. He was at a high school jersey retirement yesterday, and he found out that Josh Hart was traded, and he was super hyped. I love to see this trade. I want to see what the Knicks end up doing with it. They traded Cam Reddish, which they didn't even use Cam Reddish, so we won't even get started. Let's move on. Sadiq Bey, James Wiseman, and Gary Payton II got thrown around like ragdolls today. Let's try to summarize this up a little bit so that everybody can understand. The Warriors traded away James Wiseman, and the Hawks traded away five second-round picks. Now, the Warriors got those second-round picks and turned it into Gary Payton. The Pistons acquired James Wiseman, and the Hawks acquired Sadiq Bey. So let me summarize that one more time. Warriors got Gary Payton from the Trailblazers. The Trailblazers got five second-round picks. The Pistons got James Wiseman, and the Hawks got Sadiq Bey and Kevin Knox. So I like the moves for the Hawks. I think that that is an interesting thing that they're trying to do. Once again, similar to the Knicks trying to compete, trying to close that gap in between Celtics, Cavs, Bucks, and 76ers. So, I don't know. I think this is an okay trade. Now, for the Warriors, to get five seconds and then to convert it to Gary Payton, basically trading James Wiseman for Gary Payton is not that good of a trade. I really kind of count this up as a loss. I don't know if it's a good trade for the Warriors. Now, Gary Payton II is a great player and was a really good player for the Warriors, But in terms of compensation for a former number two overall pick in Wiseman, it's not very good. Obviously, it was a failed experiment. You know a player is a failed experiment when you have to send him back to the G League in his third year. Now, moving on. The Rockets did something extremely weird. They traded Eric Gordon to the Clippers. Eric Gordon started his career on the Clippers, and they traded for John Wall, who was just on the Rockets a few years ago, and the Rockets got rid of him. Strange. Am I right? Anyways, John Wall's on the Rockets, Eric Gordon's on the Clippers. I think the Clippers realized that John Wall was never going to be their point guard and they needed some shooting because Kawhi and Paul George aren't the best shooters. So I like the move for the Clippers, the Rockets, very questionable. Next up, the Lakers were dealing in the past couple days. The Lakers didn't trade away any of their first round picks and they got back D'Angelo Russell and Mo Bamba. It's a pretty good combination for not having to trade away first round picks. Now, Mike Conley got traded to the Timberwolves, and Patrick Beverly got traded to the Magic. Russell Westbrook got dealt to the Jazz. So overall, these moves were very Laker-centric. They got D'Angelo Russell and Mo Bamba, and they got rid of Pat Bev. 
and Russell Westbrook, who were both kind of locker room questionable, I guess, and they took up a lot of space on the bench. I love this move for the Lakers. I don't think it's going to make them contenders, but it, they're good pieces for the summer. Maybe they can make a move in free agency or find a pick or something. I don't know, but I do like these moves for the Lakers. Now, we've already talked about Kyrie Irving to the Mavericks and what that means. Let's talk the blockbuster trade. Kevin Durant has been traded to the Phoenix Suns for four first-round picks, a few Suns role players, and Mikael Bridges. Now, for the Suns, this is a massive W for now. For the Nets, this is a huge loss. Now, let's talk about it. The Suns, it's a questionable win. Trading for Kevin Durant means that you are the championship favorite out of the West. That means you have to make it to the finals and probably win the finals. You've got Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and DeAndre Ayton. I don't know how else you can think about this or question this. The Suns must win the finals to qualify this as a successful trade. Kevin Durant is in win championships now mode. He's not a player you can build around for the future. He's only got probably four or five years left of good basketball left to play. I don't even think he's going to end up doing that. He's had so many injuries. Rehab takes so much off a player's mental. Now, LeBron was able to do it for 20 years because he hasn't had really that many significant injuries. But Durant has had quite a few. I don't know if he's going to keep playing. That being said, Kevin Durant to the Suns. Suns have to win. Now, let's talk about the Nets. The Nets got back the exact same amount of compensation for Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant combined that the Utah Jazz got for Rudy Gobert this summer. What in the world have the Nets done? Now, I don't ever call for people's jobs. I don't ever want people to get fired. But that is just such a questionable move. I mean, look, it just seems like the Nets were bullied by Kyrie and Kevin Durant for about two to three years, pushed around, hire this coach, fire this coach, sign this player, fire the GM, and finally, Josai, the owner of the Nets, finally stepped in and said no. And immediately, as soon as he said no, Kyrie and Kevin Durant both said, trade me. Get me out of here. It's whatever. I mean, they're two depreciating assets, and they obviously don't want to be on those teams. They've been public about it, which hurts their trade value. So for the Nets to get out five picks, basically, and a bunch of different young role players, it's pretty good, but it's just such a loss considering that they paid so much money. They paid so much in the luxury tax. They forfeited all of the rebuilding they had done after the KG, Paul Pierce years. I don't like it, but it is what it is that is going to have to finally be the nail in the coffin for whatever that Nets big three was going to be with Kyrie, KD, and James Harden. Now, let's talk a little bit of summarization after that. Let's talk about the winners and the losers overall. Now, I've already kind of gone over who I think has been good. Lakers, Suns, and Hawks did really well today. They all improved on their teams. They didn't give up a ton. The Lakers and the Hawks didn't give up first-round picks, which is really good. The Suns did, but they got Kevin Durant, which is which, damn good. Now, the losers, Brooklyn Nets, the Golden State Warriors, and John Wall. John Wall took a fat out. He was on a Los Angeles Clippers team that could have gone to the finals, and now he's back on the Rockets, who are tanking for the number one pick, competing for the Victor Wimbayana draft. It's a damn shame for John Wall. Maybe he'll go back to the Wizards. You know, actually, I would, you know what? I just thought of that. I would love to see John Wall on the Wizards. 
Sign him, Washington. Bradley Bill, John Wall, Chris Tapps, Porzingis, and Kyle Kuzma. Why not? Just throw it together. It's not like you're winning anything anyways, and it's not like you're tanking. You might as well go ahead and sign him. Now, the Warriors and the Nets lost. They didn't get near the amount of value that they should have for the players that they traded away. However, the Warriors are in a much different spot than the Nets because the Warriors can still compete for a championship this year, like it or not. And that's going to do it for our trade deadline coverage. I thought this trade deadline was extremely exciting, riveting, and just overall enjoyable to watch. I was literally clicking the refresh button on ESPN.com to keep up with the trade deadline buzz, and I had my phone out on Twitter watching Woj on Twitter. It's going to be one of the most entertaining days in sports when there's not a game being played. All right, so first up on our college football slate, we're going to be talking NIL in college football specifically. Not really basketball or anything like that. We're going to be talking about college football. Now, let me tell you the story of Jaden Rashada. Rashada is a four-star quarterback out of Pittsburgh, California, and a pretty damn good one, according to a ton of big-name college football programs. Oregon, Oklahoma, LSU, Auburn, and many more Power 5 schools offered him a scholarship to attend their university for at least the next three years. But no other school could compete with the amount of extra NIL money that the Florida Gators offered him. According to The Athletic, Rashada was offered a four-year, $13 million deal that included a 500 k signing bonus and increasing monthly payments throughout his first three years. The fourth year, he got decreased payments, but that's mostly because he's probably not going to be there in his fourth year. Now, this is one of the most lucrative deals that we've actually been able to see since NIL became a reality in college sports in 2020. However, upon signing his national letter of intent to attend the University of Florida, reportedly Rashada was informed that the mysterious NIL collective that offered him recanted and told Rashada he wouldn't be compensated for the amount originally promised. Now, there was no paperwork or evidence to support that that has been at least leaked to the press yet. This is all coming from reporting from what I view as credible journalists. The counteroffer or full withdrawal by the NIL collective that offered him from Florida was so jarring that Rashada made it public that he was asking Florida to release him from his original letter of intent. The Gators obliged, but by the time that they did that, the NIL money across Power 5 programs had been completely exhausted. Now Rashada has committed to Arizona State to begin his college career, but with no reported NIL deal. A four-star recruit went from being a multimillionaire in the future to just attending a university on a scholarship to play football. Now, I know a lot of college football fans think that that's enough and that NIL is ruining football, but it's time to face reality. NIL is the precedent. It's here to stay and it's not ruining football, it's potentially ruining players' lives. Here is my pleasant freezing cold take, so cold that it's boiling hot. College football and its problems are in no better or worse state than about 5 to 10 to 15 years ago. In that time, we haven't seen the rise and fall of dynasties, a new rivalry to capture the nation. All we've seen is one or two teams be at or near the top over and over and over again. The Alabama Crimson Tide under Nick Saban have won six national championships and are always in the running at the year's end. And NIL hasn't helped or hurt that at all. In 2023, the recruiting class Alabama finished with was number one. And that's the same as 2021, 2019, 2017, and so on and so forth. My point in saying all that is that fans are looking at the wrong thing in this case. 
These major universities aren't hurting for money, and they never will be. NIL isn't changing the college football game any different than the transfer portal did or the spread offense did. But it is changing these players and their lives. Whether you like it or not, major college football is a job for most of these athletes on the teams. They have times that they have to report in and out of the facilities. Each time they are working on something to make themselves or the team better. And failure to do so can result now in losing capital or means of living. We live in a different world than 20, 30, 40 years ago. Food, apartments, gas cost two to three times more than they used to, and that's not to mention the average cost of living, which has skyrocketed. Players also don't just go to schools in their backyards anymore. Like Rashada, he was planning on relocating from Pittsburgh, California to Gainesville, Florida. These young men are making decisions that no family member friend, or mentor has probably ever gone through, and they're relying on the words of the coaches, athletic directors, and NIL collectives that they're recruited by to provide financial and academic security in exchange for play. Now, when something like this happens to someone like Rashada, is anyone held accountable? The answer so far has been no, which is why someone must step in for these players a lot who are under 18. Here's another pleasant, freezing cold take, so cold that it's boiling hot. It's time to unionize major college football to protect young athletes across the country. This won't be the last time that we see a story like Jaden Rashada, and believe me, it's probably only going to get worse if someone doesn't step in and stop college boosters and athletic departments from abusing this NIL system. There needs to be strict rules and actual contracts set in place to regulate how, when, and where future or current college players can get paid, as well as security for things like health care, injury insurance, housing arrangements, etc., etc. Now, once again, a lot of people are probably saying, well, that's socialism. Well, A, it's not, and B, it's how capitalism in our country has functioned for centuries. Corporations nickel and dime the working class, individual by individual, until they collectivize and demand for more compensation and benefits for their services. We have a perfect example of this in a functioning sports world, the NBA and the NBA Players Association. The Players Association covers and protects players from anything and everything that NBA teams can throw at them, including trades, salaries, revenue, practice time, and health coverage. It's time for college football and major college sports to do the same to protect athletes that have been exploited and abused, ranging from now contractual promises being broken to things like racism and sexual assault and disregards to any kind of work-life balance and player health physically and mentally. And that, my friends, is Plaisant's freezing cold take. Now let's get into some Q&As from our loyal listeners. We've got a couple more Q&As coming up in the next few episodes, so if your question hasn't gotten an answered yet, make sure you stay tuned. And if you haven't left a question yet, feel free to DM us on Instagram, leave a comment on this podcast, in the YouTube comment section. Not to mention, please subscribe, follow, 
or just listen to us daily on Spotify and YouTube. Thank you guys so much for all of your listens, all of your downloads, and all of your comments. They're all so much appreciated, and it keeps this podcast going. Without further ado, let's get into the Q&A. First question, who is the king of SEC basketball and who is a dark horse to make a deep run in the NCAA tournament out of the SEC? Now for me, Alabama is the king of SEC basketball and it's not for the reasons you think. Yes, Brandon Miller is probably going to win SEC player of the year and Alabama is ranked higher than Tennessee, but it's Alabama's depth behind Miller that makes them king. And unlike years past, This depth has tons of experience to pair with the vast amounts of young talent. Having players that could be stars elsewhere like Mark Sears from Ohio, Javon Quinterly, and Noah Gurley to be the emotional leaders of the team is steering Alabama in the right direction. But make no mistake, Brandon Miller is the go-to player and he single-handedly takes over games. Not to mention he's shooting at a 45-45-80 clip and making three threes a game. In my opinion, he's the most NBA-ready college player, and it's going to show come tournament time. Now, who do I think is going to make a dark horse run in the tournament from the SEC? Look no further than Texas A&M. The Aggies' defense is capable of enveloping offenses in transition and shows the kind of hustle and effort that an underdog needs to make a run in the tournament. Not to mention... They were the big snub out of last year's March Madness bracket. So the script kind of writes itself, you know? Next question, what impacts will the expanded college football playoffs have on programs? Well, I'm hopeful that it will create more parity, but I'm very pessimistic that we're going to see a lot more Georgia TCU type games in these playoffs when, you know, the one seed plays the eight seed. Could you imagine this past year, Georgia versus Kansas State? Oh my God. The second part of this question is what impact will the new additions to the SEC and the Big Ten have on overall in college football? Now, for those of you who don't know, Oklahoma and Texas are coming to the SEC in 2025, I think. And the same with USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten. Once again, I'm hoping that it will create some kind of balance in these conferences, but I'm worried that it will lead to the downfall of those new incoming programs because they get out-recruited by the Big Ten and the SEC big dogs, like Alabama, Georgia, Michigan, and Ohio State. A great example of this is Texas A&M joining the SEC in 2012. Since then, Texas A&M has zero SEC championships and zero college football playoff appearances. Jimbo Fisher is actually on the hot seat right now, and he's owed $80 million plus dollars. So that's what it looks like when you join a conference. You end up getting screwed over. I don't know if it's going to be the same for USC, UCLA, Texas, and Oklahoma. But if you had to ask me which one I thought was my gut feeling, it's that they're not going to pan out. And it's going to end up just being Georgia, Alabama, Michigan, and Ohio State for the next few years. Next up, another kind of Texas question. Will Arch Manning be any good at Texas? The kin of Eli Peyton and Archie Manning. Arch Manning is probably the highest touted recruit in college football history. Now, there are two different types of success in college football. There's team success and there's individual success. I think Arch Manning has a great opportunity next year to learn from a highly recruited prospect in Quinn Ewers. 
outside of personal achievement and maybe a 2024 playoff shot, I don't think Texas is going to be able to compete on a national scale. But I think Arch Manning can spark a dynasty that will bring championships probably years after he's gone. Now, this comes from one of my big group of five followers and FCS followers. What are my thoughts on Campbell's recruiting class and other recruiting classes? Now, for all of my group of five football fans, I'm going to indirectly answer this question. Here are my top three most interesting off-season storylines for non-Power 5 schools. Number three, SMU had one hell of a recruiting and transfer class combo for a group of five school. Okay, They got two four-stars and 32 three-stars combined in both those classes. They finished seven and six, but had four one-score losses. An off-season like that could instantly flip a program, especially after losing big names like quarterback Tanner and Mordecai. I think SMU could definitely make some noise next year. I wouldn't put it past them. That's a hell of a class. Number two, Campbell recruiting. Now, for a team that no one knows about, Mike Minter, a former NFL player, has the Fighting Camels finally putting the pieces together. Now, looking at their class, they picked from a lot of lower class three stars, but they did end up with 18 three stars. Like I said, though, it's far and away their best recruiting class in school history. We might see some noise being made from Campbell this year. Now, number one, this is probably the most intriguing for me. Maybe not like the best storyline, but just insane, honestly. Charlotte 49ers and their recruiting class and transfer class. Now, Biff Pogie is a former high school coach at a legendary high school in Baltimore, St. Francis Academy. And he's putting together a high school all-star team from all of his old players that he used to coach and some players that went to the school shortly after. In the transfer portal, he's gotten 12 three-stars and a four-star. Now, where are they all from? St. Francis. I've never seen something like this in the modern day of college football. It's going to be extremely interesting, to say the least. Moving on from my non-Power 5 talk, let's get into this next question. What are my thoughts on the new Alabama coordinators, and who would I like to see starting on the offensive line? Now, for starters, I love Tommy Reese from Notre Dame, who got hired as Alabama's offensive coordinator. He gives Alabama a beautiful tight end concept to work with, not to mention it looks like the power run is coming back. According to Greg McElroy, Reese is going to re-usher Alabama's, quote, Derrick Henry-led offensive style, end quote, which I actually think is going to become the meta in SEC football again. Now, when power running comes to mind, what do you need? A strong offensive line is where it all begins. At the tackles, I want to see J.C. Latham from last year and Caden Proctor, a recruit from this year. Latham reminds me of Cam Robinson. Lots of talent, but some simple mistakes that can be easily corrected. I think he grows out of those, and Proctor, who is a recruit this year, comes in as one of the highest-rated tackles in program history, and he might live up to the legend. He's already 6'7", 330 pounds. That's enough said. Now, at the guards, Tyler Booker from our starting lineup last year and Terrence Ferguson, who did not really get a lot of playing time last year but got a little action, both are extremely large and physical with their hands. I think they both pack an explosive punch when it comes to running between the tackles. And last but most certainly the most important, Seth McLaughlin at center. He reminds me a lot of Barrett Jones, who was a former tackle and center at Alabama, and his play style. 
The best thing about McLaughlin is his overwhelming experience and his rank in the class. He is the, going to be the only senior that starts this year. I think that that's going to play a very important part because he's going to be the penultimate leader of the Alabama offensive line. Now, moving on to the defensive side of the ball. Kevin Steele has been stolen from Miami as their defensive coordinator and hired at Alabama. Now, to me, Steele was not even on my radar, but he's one of the best hires that Saban could have made, in my opinion. Steele was the defensive coordinator for Gus Malzahn at Auburn from 2016 to 2020. And what I always remember from those teams, they were extremely strong up front. He held those top five Clemson teams with Deshaun Watson to less than 20 points twice, as well as beat Alabama not once, but twice again. Anytime that you have somebody on a four-year record that can do that to a higher-powered offense like Clemson and then do the same thing to Alabama, it's a pretty good damn record on your resume. Hopefully, Alabama gets back to winning at the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball and not the point of attack, which has been the main focus for probably about the last five or six years. Overall, both of these hires are great additions by subtractions. Bill O'Brien and Pete Golding had run their course at Alabama, and it was time for some fresh blood. Now, last question. Does Bronny James deserve a large NIL deal, or is he riding his father's coattails? Now, kind of wrap this up pretty quickly. When it comes to children riding their coattails of their successful parents, I think it's hard not to when you're entering into the same field as your very successful parent. It's sad to say, but like so many offspring, Bronny will probably never be his own person and he will always live in his father's shadow. And that's going to do it for this episode of Plaisance Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.